for them, it's a life or death situation sometimes. I have multiple patients that I am helping right now who have RSV and it's very severe. Coming up on Carolina Connection, hospitals in the Triangle are overwhelmed by respiratory syncytial virus. Good morning, I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Will Christensen. Also this week, an abortion protest on the quad has students debating how far freedom of speech should extend on campus. Critics call on UNC and other universities to reconsider the importance of legacy admissions. A student group works to bring thrifting to campus, and American Indian students celebrate their history and culture during November. Native Americans are not like what stereotype is like, so it's really important just to show that we are still here. From the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media, this is Carolina Connection. Thanks for joining us. For the first time, the UNC Medical Center has opened a surge unit for children with respiratory viruses. The number of cases has caused a shortage of beds, so the hospital has added six more to an unused portion of the building. It's gearing up to add as many as 14. Doctors say this year has brought an unusually high number of cases. They continue to see COVID-19 cases, but the bigger problem right now is the flu and a condition called RSV. Medical experts are calling it a triple-demic. UNC first-year Eileen Ball found out about it when her roommate came down with bad respiratory symptoms last month. It was only a matter of days before Ball got the same thing herself. So I had a terrible cough. My nose was running. Um, I had a headache. Uh, those are the main ones, but um, even now, like, I'm, while I'm, like, recovered, like, I will cough occasionally. <laughs> Sorry, as you can see, of, like, some mucus that I had back there. Ball tested positive for the flu, and this year, even as COVID-19 has eased, doctors and hospitals are being overwhelmed by cases of the flu and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Dr. Benny Joyner, the UNC Hospital Chief of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, says RSV is uncommonly present this year. It certainly over the past four weeks has spiked tremendously. And so whereas our RSV positivity rate for the tests that we sent is usually less than 5%, certainly less than 10%, over the past four weeks, um, of all the tests that we send for looking for respiratory viruses, 30% come back positive for RSV. So we've had over um, 200 cases per week uh, at, at certain points over the past four weeks of RSV, and so that's been a pretty significant number for us. Joyner says that healthy adults get RSV a few times a year, and the symptoms normally mimic the common cold. But children's cases can be more urgent. We may feel sick for about a week or so and then get better. But for, for infants, it really becomes a problem because their airways are so much smaller, and that congestion can really impact them. The CDC says that most children get a mild case of RSV at least once before turning two. However, the pandemic has resulted in an immunity gap, which has caused many children's first RSV cases to be unexpectedly severe. Rayad Shams is a third-year medical student who saw these cases firsthand during his pediatric rotation. They were coming in for these symptoms that were very severe, and we find out afterwards, after testing, that it's actually RSV, which is not something we're used to seeing often. Parents are pretty surprised by the fact that this is RSV because they know that it's supposed to be mild, it's not supposed to be severe. And with these cases being more severe, there is little that doctors can do to get rid of the virus. There is a little bit of frustration that parents express when we tell them, hey, there is no magic pill, there is no antibiotic that we can 
give your uh, child to make them feel better, it's mostly supportive treatment, which works when if the symptoms are mild. But children aren't the only vulnerable population that RSV is affecting. Shams is now working in the geriatric ward and says that the elderly population is also suffering. For them, it, it's a life or death situation sometimes. Um, I have multiple patients that I am helping right now who have RSV and it's very severe. RSV can be dangerous for certain age groups, but there are preventative measures people can take. Joyner recommends wearing masks, washing your hands, and social distancing. UNC and Harvard went to the U.S. Supreme Court a few weeks ago to defend their race-conscious admissions policies. But race isn't the only kind of preferential consideration that colleges give to potential applicants. As Chris Kammerer reports, so-called legacy admissions are also attracting scrutiny. When UNC and Harvard defended affirmative action for nearly five hours of oral arguments at the Supreme Court, it seemed both sides agreed there was one admissions practice that should be re-examined, the consideration of legacy status. That's the practice of giving priority to applicants whose parents or relatives are alumni of the school they're applying to. Jenna A. Robinson is president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Renewal, a conservative nonprofit that studies education issues in Raleigh. Legacy admissions de facto favor students who are high income, usually white. And so if you want to simply even the playing field, make sure that merit is what matters then get rid of those legacy preferences. During UNC's oral arguments, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson wondered what might happen if race considerations become unconstitutional, raising a hypothetical that pointed directly at legacy status. The first applicant says, I will be the fifth generation to graduate from the University of North Carolina. I want to honor my family's legacy by going to this school. The second applicant says, I'm from North Carolina. My family's been in this area for generations since before the Civil War, but they were slaves and never had a chance to attend this venerable institution. And given my family background, it's important to me to attend this university. Now, as I understand your no race conscious admissions rule, the first applicant would be able to have his family background considered and valued by the institution while the second one wouldn't be able to. A study published in 2010 from Harvard's Graduate School of Education analyzed data from 30 highly selective universities across the country. It found that applicants with legacy status averaged three times the odds of being accepted compared with non-legacy applicants. Here's Holden Thorpe, who was chancellor of UNC from 2008 to 2013. Of course it's true that the children of people who went to Carolina, big donors, friends of politicians, you know, a lot of this stuff goes into the mix. And working as much of that out of the system as we can over time would be a great thing. But it's everywhere in higher education. There's no question about it. After leaving UNC, Thorpe took over as provost at Washington University in St. Louis for six years. When I got to Wash U, there was a very small percentage of students who were eligible for Pell Grants and also low numbers of Black and Hispanic students. As provost, Thorpe was put in charge of trying to increase diversity at Wash U. Every time I went to the board, to say we've upped black students, Hispanic students, low-income students. They always asked me, you know, how much our SAT scores went down. And I would say, I'm sorry, but our SAT scores went up. And the reason is because there's this vast underserved pool of outstanding students in this country. And that pool is much bigger and more academically qualified than the pool of children of alumni. How difficult do you think it would be to, to get rid of legacy admissions at UNC? 
I think it'd be really hard. I think it'd be as hard at UNC as just about anywhere because there's such a strong sense of, of loyalty and attachment to the institution. But Thorpe pointed to Johns Hopkins University, which began phasing out legacy preferences in 2009. At that point, legacy admissions accounted for 12.5% of the undergraduate population. Today, legacy students are around 3%. By comparison, statistics from UNC's Office of Undergraduate Admissions typically report that 17 to 19% of enrollees at UNC each fall are children of alumni. The alumni have very high expectations that they'll receive that, and nobody has the courage to go to the alumni and say, we're not going to do it anymore. In the conclusion of the Harvard study, which calculated the advantage for legacy applicants, the author wrote that donations from alumni are increasingly important to the well-being of universities and ensure academic excellence for future generations of students. On the other hand, Johns Hopkins president Ronald J. Daniels claimed in an interview in 2020 that ending legacy preferences hasn't decreased alumni donations. They've actually been increasing. In Chapel Hill, I'm Chris Kammer. A new memorial in the pit honors James Cates. He was a 22-year-old black Chapel Hill resident who was fatally stabbed on campus in 1970. Members of a white supremacist group were charged with murder but found not guilty by an all-white jury. Kate's family, the community, and student activists have been working with the university to commemorate him. Here to talk about the memorial and the dedication happening Monday is Leah Cox, the university's chief diversity officer. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Lauren. So first, could you tell me a little bit about the memorial and why it's being placed now? Sure. So um, it will be a, a plaque that's placed in the pit to uh, basically remember James Cates, who died there uh, almost 52 years ago. He was 22 years old. Um, and it was here on campus. And so, you know, we, we recognize that this was an unfair um, death that took place on our campus that probably should not have. Um, and we think it's it's the right thing to do for our community and for the family um, to recognize this young man who died here. So um, they're going to do that. Uh, and members of the family, the local community, the campus are all invited um, to the, the memorial event on Monday. And so with the memorial, who decided where to place it and what it was going to look like? So the uh, Board of Trustees, along with the Chancellor, um, the family, um, all sort of looked at where it would be placed, uh, what it would say. Uh, the Chancellor and I had conversations with the family, a family member to ask if, you know, what was going to be on the plaque was acceptable. They said yes. Um, so all of those folks had a hand in making that final decision. Ultimately, the Board of Trustees has the ability to say yes or no to us placing a plaque on a public institution. What is going to happen during this memorial dedication on the 21st? So there'll be a couple of uh, comments from uh, members of the community, from our student body government president, from um, our Black Student Movement president, the chancellor, Board of Trustee member, myself, um, Congresswoman-elect Fushi and um, Pastor Nate Davis are both family members to Mr. Cates, um, and they'll also have something um, to share and say. And then we will um, lay the plaque, and uh, then folks are, you know, free to come take a look, convene, community, discuss, whatever, you know. There'll be some um, singing by Voices of Praise, 
uh, there also. What is the university hoping that students are going to take away from this plaque and from this dedication? I guess my hope is that we will recognize that there was an injustice that took place. And while we can't right the wrong, we can at least acknowledge that um, something that shouldn't happen took place on this campus. And we want folks to remember uh, Mr. Cates um, and how he was a member of the community and lost his life senselessly. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Lauren. Thanks for contacting me. Earlier this semester, members of an anti-abortion group put up a display in the quad. It featured graphic images of fetuses and messages urging viewers not to get abortions. Many students who were disturbed by the display questioned if the group should be allowed on campus. Reagan Allen reports. The Center for Bioethical Reform is an anti-abortion organization that aims to stop women from getting them. They handed out flyers, spoke, and debated with students in the quad. Many students were outraged by the gruesome images used and wondered why they were allowed to be there. Jacinta Robin works for the CBR and was on UNC's campus with the organization. I asked her why she believed depicting disturbing images in public was necessary. Every single person that I've spoken to that's gotten involved in the pro-life movement told me that they saw a picture and they wanted to do something about it. When you tell someone something is wrong, they nod their heads and they agree with you that something is wrong. But when you show them what that wrong thing is, they're more motivated to get activated and do something about it. Willow Taylor Chang Yang is the campus coordinator for the Student Get Out and Vote campaign that advocates for progressive candidates. She is a part of the national organization Feminist Majority, which promotes gender equality and women's rights. The kind of very graphic imagery, the very disturbing imagery that they're putting on there is my issue with it. There are a lot of students, like very young, like not only college students, but like high school students and like middle school students on this campus too. And so for them to kind of walk through the quad, they see these very disturbing images. What is that doing to kind of, I guess, the children of families in the area? Haley Gluhanik is the program officer in campus rights advocacy for the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or better known as FIRE. The organization defends free speech, due process, and academic freedom. Speech is very vital to our, for so many things, for our democracy, for figuring out truth and knowledge, and even just for mental health too, you know, part of speech is expression and people want to express who they are. I asked her when speech would be considered unconstitutional, beyond just offensive and unsettling. She didn't see anything that would call for regulation from the CBR. There are instances where hate speech can turn into an unprotected form of speech. You know, it can get to the point of being fighting words. It can get to the point of being incitement. It can get to the point of turning into a true threat. But if it's not reaching to that point, then it is protected. The organization FIRE supports all forms of free speech protected by the Constitution even if personal members don't agree with what's being said. We also support the right to protest and to criticize an event or speech that's going on, you know, counter speech you don't like with more speech. You don't need to silence people. We don't need to punish them. Just use more speech as long as you are also keeping it within the realm of it being protected. Tripp Gilly is a junior arguing against counter protesting. During the anti-abortion demonstration, he sat in the quad with a sign that said, counter-protesting is dumb. My number one thing to students is 
research it for yourself. Do not listen to me, do not listen to the um, pro-life folks, don't listen to pro-choice folks. Um, do what is in line with you and your morality or your religion. The CBR goes to different state colleges promoting anti-abortion and will likely be back on UNC's campus next year. In Chapel Hill, I'm Reagan Allen. Listening to Carolina Connection, UNC's student produced newscast. I'm Lauren Lovett. And I'm Will Christensen. This month, American Indian students on campus are celebrating their culture. They also hope to break down stereotypes that many Native American students face on campus. Lorelai Sykes has the story. As people entered the Student Union Great Hall, they found students dressed in traditional clothing and beaded jewelry, and it became clear that a celebration was coming. November is National American Indian Heritage Month. Former President George Bush declared national recognition in 1990, and many institutions have followed suit. The American Indian Center and Carolina Indian Circle at UNC sets aside multiple dates throughout the year to appreciate their culture and inform fellow students about their traditions, whether it be through their annual powwow in March or their most recent cultural showcase this past Tuesday. For first-year Native students, finding your place on campus can seem daunting, but for the current senior and president of the Carolina Indian Circle, Zion Richardson, it wasn't. So my mom, who's sitting right over there, she was in CIC when she was here, and so I grew up coming to CIC powwow, and the year before I came as a student here, I was invited to perform in Culture Show, and so when I came here, that was like the first place that I went was Carolina Indian Circle because it was important for me to establish my foundation first and I knew that came from my people and my community. At a PWI or predominantly white institution like UNC, this month stands out in particular. UNC is known to be built on land that once belonged to a number of indigenous tribes. While students take the time to reflect and come together this month, it can be tiring to educate such a large majority. Dylan Hammonds, a first year student and member of the Lumbee tribe, speaks to this notion. A lot of people think of Native Americans as something that had in the past and very stoic and historic when we are Native Americans here, we don't all have like pecan skin tone with long black hair with braids wearing feathers in our hair every single day. Like I'm here today with a flannel and some American Eagle jeans on. Like we're Native Americans are not like what stereotype is like. So that's really important just to show that we are still here Hammond Speedwork is on display as Dalton Locklear, the vice president of the Carolina Indian Circle, wears a handmade beaded Tar Heel footprint. Dylan made this and I stole it from him before he put it on the artwork table. He made it? Yes. How long did you think it took? I don't know. He probably procrastinated, <laughs> but it took, I'm pretty sure it took him a good minute. Locklear echoes Hammond's. He says that celebrations like this keep the culture alive and ensure that people don't think of Native Americans as something of the past. November, to me, is just an opportunity to show the public what I've been practicing the entire year. It's an opportunity to show others what indigenous culture is. This, sometimes it seems to be the only month that people care about indigenous people. So, to me, it's an opportunity to show these people, hey, this is why you should care about natives year-round, not just during November. 
CIC continues to host a number of events throughout the year to not just celebrate, but to inform others of the very alive and thriving Native community. In Chapel Hill, I'm Lorelai Sykes. The Epilogue Bookstore and Coffeehouse on Franklin Street has debuted a new resource to help young LGBTQ people. The store now includes a queer library carousel with young adult and middle grade books, and they're available for free. Madison Ward has more. The queer Latinx-owned independent cafe also serves as a bookstore. Recently, they opened Reading Rainbows, a free queer bookstand. Gabby Laurie is a 2021 UNC graduate and the events coordinator for Epilogue. After hearing of a different bookstore offering a free queer library, she said she became inspired to bring their own to Epilogue. And I was like, there's no reason why we can't do this. This is awesome. Lori said she repurposed a carousel that formerly featured young adult books to create reading rainbows. People are able to donate to the stand on Epilogue's website. They can purchase young adult, middle grade, or nonfiction queer books that the Epilogue staff displays, Lori said. Patrons can also purchase a book to donate in person in the store by letting employees know at checkout the book is for reading rainbows. The idea is that queer youth or anyone who wants a free queer book can just pick it up. Lori said it's important to her to be able to provide accessible queer literature to young people, especially because many LGBTQ books are banned from public schools. I am a Southern butch lesbian, so I want to make this a queer safe space in so many ways. She added the stand quickly became a hit at Epilogue. I have watched young people take books from the stand and I mean, they at first, sometimes they seem a little shy. Sometimes they'll ask questions. But everyone who donates a book can rest assured that it's going to someone who needs it. Terrence Hudson, the manager of Epilogue, said they believe queer teens should be allowed to see themselves represented in as much media as possible. Hudson added making queer books free is one of the best ways to do that. Just a really nice thing to have in a community, like a little free library that you can pick from without fear of judgment. Hudson said Reading Rainbows has received powerful, positive feedback from the community. We get some queer teens who are like, wow, I've never seen books that like represent me before. And we get some parents who are like, am I allowed to take one of these for my kid? And we're like, yes, absolutely, please do. Julia Badley is a senior at UNC who frequently patrons Epilogue. When she saw the stand, she said she was impressed with the store's efforts to offer free books that uplift the LGBTQ community. As a queer person, I really enjoy that um, Epilogue is able to showcase like all these different types of books that sometimes are banned or not available in like other areas of like, education in our country. Badley said she loves how Epilogue helps people learn about different identities or even learn about themselves through literature. Reporting from Chapel Hill, I'm Madison Ward. Two of UNC's most successful sports programs are competing in NCAA tournaments this weekend. Here to give us an update on UNC field hockey and women's soccer is Carolina Connections' own Noah Monroe. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Thanks for having me, Will. So, field hockey, uh, they played Penn State yesterday, winning 3-0, to sending them to their 21st national championship appearance in program history. Uh, what can you tell us about this win? Yeah, it was pretty hard-fought win for the Tar Heels with the defenses uh, standing out for both sides in the first half. Uh, neither team was really able to get an upper hand. Penalty corner after penalty corner went with anybody scoring. Uh, but Aaron Matson broke through 21 minutes into the game, giving UNC the upper hand. 
Uh, they went into the half up 1-0, and from there on out, they started to pick up the pace. Matson broke through again, scoring her second goal of the game. And then eight minutes later, Peyton Worth, who transferred from Penn State two years ago, scored, and that pretty much you know put the game out of reach, sending North Carolina to the title game. It's been an overall successful year for them, especially the year after getting knocked out in the first round. They've gone 20-0, and and Matson keeps displaying why she's one of the greatest athletes in the history of uh, North Carolina. Yeah, so we're pre-recording this uh, Friday afternoon, uh, just as a little disclaimer. So we don't really know what, what's going to go down in the Northwestern versus Maryland game uh, today to decide who's going to face down North Carolina in the championship. But can you um, tell me a little bit about both of those teams, what, what the matchup in the championship could look like for, for UNC? Well, with Northwestern, it's a little bit of a revenge game. Northwestern is who knocked them out in the first round last year. Northwestern won the national championship last year. I mean, all, all around, it's just something that UNC can you know, hang their hats on if they do beat Northwestern, kind of a you know, comeback arc. With Maryland, they've, you know, Northwestern and Maryland have played each other twice this year, uh, splitting the matchups. But Maryland has also played Syracuse in the NCAA tournament, somebody that North Carolina has beat twice this year, including a 6-1 win. Gotcha. And moving on to women's soccer now, um, also a big win on, on Thursday, beating Georgia 3-1 to to advance to uh, the third round to play BYU at, at 11.30 today. Um, can you tell me a little, more, a little bit more about that game? Yeah, like field hockey, women's soccer lost in the first round last year, which was the first time that had ever happened in the 46 years that head coach Anson Dorrance has been at UNC. There is 17-4-1 on the season, but entering the ACC tournament, they were the number two team in the country. Injuries ran rampant on them last year with Ali Sintnor out for the season, but what a help she's been for them this year, especially on Thursday's win uh, as she scored two goals. You know, they have two more games to win, but they have the team needed to, to win those games and make the Final Four of college soccer, the College Cup, and possibly win their first national championship in 10 years. Awesome. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Thanks for having me, Will. Finally this week, for college students on a budget, Thrifting is an inexpensive and environmentally friendly way to find new clothes, and a new club is bringing thrifting closer to campus while also promoting sustainable fashion practices. Emma Cook has more. At UNC, the closest thrift store is about a 30-minute walk from the heart of campus, presenting challenges for some students who want to thrift or donate clothes. But new this semester, Thrift Flipped is creating a permanent on-campus thrifting location to make shopping secondhand more attainable for students. The club's founder, first-year Ariel Hopperin, says that the idea started when they realized most students purchase from online fast fashion brands because it's cheap and easy, a staple of the college lifestyle. I went to visit my sister who was a freshman at UNC at the time. And all of our friends who had previously been into thrifting, a lot of their clothes that they got were from like fast fashion companies like Shein and Amazon um, because that was the only thing accessible to them that was affordable. And this is the case for a lot of students who don't have the money to spend or time to go to thrift stores. Halpern says Thrift Flipped will not only make it easier to shop sustainably, but through events, educate the campus on how to have a more sustainable wardrobe. For example, the club plans to host upcycling workshops. That way, students can transform the items they already own through distressing, painting, and other technical skills taught by the club. Claire Henson is a graduate student at the Wilson College of Textiles at NC State, and she says it's more sustainable to wear and rework what you have before buying something new. And if you do thrift or buy new items, she says to purchase quality pieces that you will wear for a long time. 
Henson's personal rule is at least 30 times. Even if you're thrifting, don't just buy it because you want to buy something and don't don't just buy it because you're like, oh, I'm thrifting, so it's sustainable. I can buy as much as I want. It still has an impact. But Henson says there are lots of ways for students to make more sustainable clothing choices every day. Buy less, hang dry your clothes, look for natural fibers on clothing tags, and before purchasing, research the brand to learn about their sustainability practices. Every single person wears clothes, and so I think it's like a really good place to make a difference because um, it touches everybody. Sophomore Kira Cornell says they thrift often and try to implement sustainable shopping practices when possible, and they are excited to have Thrift Flipped as a nearby option, as well as its mission of educating students about the environmental impacts in fashion. So I think it is important to see like your um, clothing usage in the grand scheme of things, um, just as it's important to see like, you know, are you conserving water? Are you conserving electricity? Because A, it will save you money in the long run, and B, it will be much better for our environment. Halprin also hopes that through an on-campus location and events, Thrift Flipped will create a sustainable community on campus in which clothes are recycled and upcycled. And they give their clothes, someone else can find it. Um, and kind of this whole community feel I think is really important, especially connecting over fashion and um, connecting over caring for the environment. There will be a thrifting drive on November 28th, and on the 30th, the club will be featured in Sustainable Strut, a fashion show hosted by UNC student government. In Chapel Hill, I'm Emma Cook. And that's it for this edition of Carolina Connection, a production of the UNC Hussman School of Journalism and Media. Our technical director is Layla Pakamian. I'm Will Christensen. And I'm Lauren Lovett. You can hear more of our stories at carolinaconnection.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at UNC Connection and on Facebook at Carolina Connection. Thanks for listening.